This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is there are the largest protests in Iran since the revolution of 1979, I think that's fair to say. There was a young woman, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini, who was arrested by Iran's morality police, which is this police force that the the regime has that goes around enforcing uh, whether your hijab is on properly, whether your clothes are too tight. Whether you're showing too much hair. Whether you're showing too much hair. Too much lipstick. You look too sexy. They've got lots of ideas. Exactly. And so they they arrested this girl and she died in custody and they tried to pass it off and blame it on, uh, on a heart condition or something like that, but nobody bought it. And the women in Iran rose up. And, Not just women. Uh, but, but it started with women. And there's been this uprising happening in Iran that wasn't just a blip. It's, it's continued and it's spread throughout the country. And people are starting to question whether this could be it, whether this could be the uprising. You know, every time there's an uprising, we, we hope that there's a chance that this could be the end of the regime. But there's rising hope that this could be a trigger. So I want to actually talk about that. Uh, I want to talk about what the end of the regime means, because I think people don't understand. But first, I want to remind everybody, Masa Amini was the, the first person to die. But at least 100 and probably twice that many have died since. Another girl was beaten to death. Similarly, we now have on film that has been shared extraordinarily widely, a woman being sexually assaulted by regime forces. The morality police? (laughs) Probably not them. Probably it was the immorality forces that were doing that. There was an uprising probably inside the notorious Evin prison where they keep political prisoners. So if anybody saw this, Evin prison was consumed with flames. Eight prisoners were killed. There were shots being fired. The Iranians have said that a fire started in a sewing room room or something like that. A complete lie. None of it matches up to what was seen and heard on video at that time, including gunshots. So the place is coming unraveled. And it's important to understand that. At the same time that this is happening, two other things are happening. One is that the Iranian regime is, and not covertly, not quietly, overtly providing Russia with drones, which they are using to attack civilian targets in Kiev and other and places. And training for those. And, so they're now and, Iranian forces well, on so the So the ground. Russians were not using them properly. So they have literally, they have Iranian trainers in Crimea training the Russians on how to use them. I, I just as a little sidebar on this, how freaking humiliating is that? that you are a country that calls yourself a great power on a par with the United States, and yet you have Iranian trainers because you're too incompetent to use Iranian drones. I mean, you couldn't write that story better. Yeah. Incredible. So you've got the Iranian regime firing on its people indirectly through the Russians firing on the Ukrainian people. And what is the Biden administration doing? negotiating with the Iranian regime, hoping to get a nuclear deal. At a moment in history when 
the Iranian people are rising up against their oppressors, when the Iranian regime is, this is a regime that's always spread terror throughout the Middle East, but is now spreading terror into the heart of Europe through these drone attacks and the enabling of the Russian offensive in Ukraine, this administration, rather than saying, this is a moment in history, we should rise up to it and and oppose the Iranian regime, is desperately trying to get the Iran nuclear deal back on the table. Right. Look, they've certainly made several statements suggesting that they're not trying to get the nuclear deal on the table. But my bet is that the chief negotiator, Rob Malley, is indeed still trying to get it back on the table. So I wanted to talk for a second, because we don't talk about this with our guest. Regular listeners of this podcast know exactly what we're talking about when we say that Iran's tentacles are so deeply embedded in so much of the Middle East that the demise of this regime would have incredible implications. First of all, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, right? They single-handedly are propping them up, not simply through their own power, but also through the power of their terrorist proxy forces like Hezbollah. Then we talk about Hezbollah, which is governing Lebanon, which would suddenly lose its spiritual leaders in Tehran. We have Hamas, right? The terrorist group that controls Gaza, they would suddenly be losing their source of support, supply, weapons. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, right, in Yemen. Also, the popular mobilization forces that have killed so many Americans and so many Iraqis inside Iraq, they would lose their backing and their foundation. This would be amazing. It would have ripple effect throughout the Middle East that would change so much. Why is the White House not? egging them on in every way they can. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating question. And look, we get into this a little bit with our guests, but I, you know, my touchstone is always the Solidarity Trade Union movement in Poland, which brought down the Berlin Wall and Soviet communism. The Berlin Wall didn't fall, it was pushed. There was a concrete strategy on the part of the United States. This became an argument after the end of the Cold War, saying, well, communism fell. It's like, and, no, it and, got pushed. No, it got pushed, exactly. Yeah. And so we're not pushing. I know the immediate response is neocon warmongers. Haven't you learned about regime change? Blah, blah, blah. No one's talking about sending U.S. troops to fight a war in the Middle East. No one's talking about those sorts of things. We're talking about doing what conservative foreign policy has done since the 1980s. Which what is the Ukrainians to stand, are doing for themselves yeah, in Ukraine. Which is stand with people who are fighting for their own freedom. We don't have to go send troops around the world everywhere to overthrow regimes, but we should not be neutral when people are standing up against an oppressive regime, which, by the way, until 9-11 killed more Americans than any terrorist organization in the world. Right, um, and is still you know, working hard. And, and has, you know, trust a few years ago tried to assassinate the Saudi diplomat here in Washington, D.C. in a plot that was disrupted. This is a regime that has American blood on its hands that killed probably more Americans in Iraq than uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq did. And it would be a blessing to the world if this regime fell, pushed down by its own people. And all we need to do is have a strategy to to put the squeeze on the regime to make sure that they don't have the resources to crush the protesters. Give the protesters the same things we did for the opposition in Eastern Europe, which is give them information, give them intelligence, give them access to information. Now we have the Internet. We didn't have it back then. Back then it was underground newspapers printed with like shoe polish in someone's basement. Now we can give them Starlink and allow them to have free access and communication. This isn't hard stuff, but it takes a decision on the part of our leaders to say we are going to stand with the forces of freedom against the forces of evil and aid and abet the forces of freedom in that struggle. And for a guy who says that his whole overarching theme of his foreign policy is the battle between autocracy and democracy. Oh, what about women's rights and women's freedoms? No, apparently, no. What they mean by that is, well, anyway, you guys know where I'm going with that. (laughs) 
Let's Market get to our guest. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're lucky to have Bechnam Ben Talablu with us. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. He works on Iranian security there. He's really an articulate analyst of the political scene in Iran and before he was at FDD, he worked at one of my favorite organizations, which is the Wisconsin Project. They work on nuclear arms control issues, and they are probably the best sort of nitty-gritty analysts of how Iran has been building their nuclear weapons program. So great pedigree, and it's a super to have him. Here's our interview. Bethnam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you both. So Americans have all been watching these protests taking place in Iran with some excitement that something may be happening finally in the Islamic Republic. Tell us, first of all, tell us how did these protests start and what's going on? Absolutely. Uh, well, in many ways, you could say there's a straight American parallel here with 1968 because the whole world is watching. The question is, what is the whole world doing? Because there have been protests inside the Islamic Republic now, you know, at a minimum 230, 240 persons killed. These protests were touched off in early September, about September 13th to the 16th, because on September 13th, there was an Iranian Kurdish woman, a 22-year-old woman visiting that country's capital, visiting Tehran, where she was detained and brutally beaten by the country's so-called morality police, which is a, you know, a few decades old unit that is technically part of the country's national police or the law enforcement forces. For what crime? And the crime, uh, most atrocious to even really to say that this would be a crime, but not conforming to some of the super strict hardcore Islamist dress codes. Uh, initially, it was assumed that she wasn't wearing her hijab properly, but later on there were comments that you know her pants may have been too tight. But these are things that the morality police, which are composed of both hyper-traditional, hyper-conservative, and hyper-pro-regime men and women in Iran, uh, they do. They go around patrolling and policing, beating, harassing, jailing, fining, detaining, and they brutally beat uh, Masa Amini. She was in a coma for about three days, and she died in Tehran's Kasra Hospital moments after she died and moments after the news came out. The regime uh, tried to cover up the story, and there were protests outside that hospital. And moments later, uh, with her funeral in the town of Saqiz, which is in Iran's western Kurdistan province, there were protests there. So whether it was the big city, the big capital, Tehran, or small town in you know uh, near Iran's periphery in the west, uh, in Iranian Kurdistan, protests began immediately and set off across all of Iran's 31 provinces. And all those provinces are continuing to protest today. And they have a fundamentally different message than some who have been looking at Iranian protests before. You know, most famously, there was in the summer of 2009, the Green Movement, where there were street protests inside Tehran. Um, but those protests were tied to a certain element of the country's political system. And what we've seen with the protests since the killing, the brutal killing of Masa Amini, is a, a change in, in it's basically a new national phenomenon because since 2017 there have been protests inside the islamic republic not tied to any particular faction but protests triggered by distinctly non-political events social issues environmental issues religious issues and especially economic issues and even some foreign policy issues that allows the population to come onto the street in a geographically and demographically and, and class-wise diverse way and to say fundamentally one thing, that they want an end to the Islamic Republic. So the Iranian people have been using every single available opportunity to them. And the brutal killing of Masa Amini was yet another opportunity for Iranians to make this claim, make it very publicly, show the world the massive chasm that exists between state and society inside that country, and to see if the world can help them do something about it. 
So what's amazing to me, Bernam, is that these protests began, I think the regime realized that there was something serious going on. One of the most meaningful things I saw in the beginning was that conservative women were joining. In other words, you know, we wear hijab, we want to wear it, we, we want to cover our hair, we're conservative, but we want people to have rights. We want people not to run the risk of death in the streets from the security authorities. But what's so crazy to me is that after 2009, the Iranian state put in these unbelievable police-like powers that infiltrate universities, city governments, regions that are intended to suppress just this kind of demonstration, and they haven't been able to. What's going on? I think, you know, Danny, you... you oh, wait, wait. What the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Very good plug for the title. Listen, I think, Danny, you, you, you put your finger on it there, which is despite really the, the, the chance of Iranians losing life and limb by continuing to go onto the streets, this is how serious this is to them. This is not a fashion statement. This is not a religious statement. This is a larger political statement that they want autonomy, that they want agency, that they want to be in charge of their own destiny. And this ties in really to a lot of other, you know, almost you could say a century-long quest for social justice and representative government in Iran. I know these days it's very vogue or very fashionable to say that these protests are qualitatively different, and there are things that do make it different. But at the same time, this touches a nerve inside the Iranian body politic, which is exactly why that brutal scene was seen exactly the same way by Iranians of different ethnicities, of different social classes, of different levels of, as you were talking about, religious virtue or religious traditionalism, and they all saw it as a massive encroachment of state power on individual liberty, on individual autonomy, something that Iranians had been protesting for for over a century. And then when you take in the recent history, the 43-year history of the Islamic Republic, and you look at these different iterations and the changing faces of patterns of street protest, and you look at those 2017 ones to present, it just tells you the population has had it, their back is against the wall, and they're tired of exactly what you said, which is that second-tier repressive apparatus serving as a check among every element of society, a check against women, a check against university students, a check against labor unions, a check against uh, guilds, a check against the, what's left, you could say, of the legitimate private sector, a check against teachers. And which is why, weeks into this, we are seeing not just street power, not just protests, but those protests be amplified institutionally with strikes. And this could get us potentially to, the, to a point where there could be a critical juncture in these protests down the line because it was the street plus strikes that tanked the Shah's regime, the previous uh, government in Iran that fell in 1979 to an Islamic revolution. And it was particularly street power that was sustained, married up with strikes in that country's energy sector. And whether you're looking at that country in the 70s or you're looking at it today, uh, that is really one of the single most important sources of revenue for whatever government is in Tehran. And if these strikes that were in educational institutions and in service sectors now spread and are sustained through the energy sector, uh, this could take an entirely different turn. So there was a really interesting piece in Foreign Affairs by an Iranian-American journalist, and one of the things she was saying was that unlike previous protests, which were economic or had to do with you know, water or things like that, this is a protest fundamentally against the regime, and she compared the wearing of the hijab to the Berlin Wall. It was a fundamental tenet of the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic that they imposed this kind of restriction on women. Just as when the Berlin Wall fell, it showed the fragility of the, of the uh, Soviet communist system, that if they are successful in protesting over this, then it could bring down the whole thing. 
A, a couple of very fine points on that because absolutely, you know, there, there is perhaps one of the most famous symbols of the Islamic Republic is this mandatory hijab, this mandatory veiling. Because as long as there's been an Islamic Republic, there has been protests against an Islamic Republic. That's just something about street power in that country. And that's something the regime elites tend to understand very well because they know exactly what sentiments, views, values they exploited and how they backed them up with force to stay in power for 43 years. So the pushback on the hijab is particularly sensitive culturally, religiously, and politically inside the Islamic Republic. But where I would take a slightly different tack is this 2017 to present period of protest, because I would say those protests that some uh, Western journalists, not Iranian-American journalists, but some Western journalists that I've grappled with in different iterations of protests from 2017 to present were reluctant to call all of those protests, whether they were triggered by water, triggered by environmental issues, triggered by flooding, triggered by economic shocks, high food prices, oil subsidy cuts, the West continuously misread all those protests from 2017 to present as the trigger. They read it as just, oh, it's an economic protest. Oh, it's an anti-hijab protest. And they failed to see what sustained Iranians on the street, which is that larger political grievance. So in my view, this is built very much on the tradition of A, that century-long quest, but B, in the short term, off of the changing face of post-2017 protests in Iran. Because if you look at slogans, if you look at geography, if you look at demography, and if you look at violence, protests in Iran since 2017 are qualitatively different than any ones we've seen before. And that is because the Iranian people have been less afraid than ever before to say things like death to the dictator, to say things like forget Syria, think about us, to say things literally beginning in front of the Iranian parliament in 2018 uh, our enemies here, they lie when they say it's in America, as well as, of course, invoking some other opposition figures as well. So this is part of the changing pattern of protests. People may have forgotten that these slogans were heard as early as May of this year when there were food price hikes leading to mass protests like this. So it's high time the West is not caught flat-footed by these protests anymore. This is part of a new political landscape in that country. And this ridiculous approach, unfortunately, that continues to be taken by Washington of deal or no deal, misses all of these things on the ground, these new facts on the ground inside the country, and will lead us to have these exogenous shocks catching Western politicians with their pants down on what to do on Iran. I want to get to the Washington side of this, but let's stay in, in Iran for a moment before we do that. Sure. Talk a little bit about the hijab and what it means in, within the Islamic Republic. As my understanding is that the Shah, while very repressive, actually it would, the country was one of the most liberal when it came to women's rights. And then when the Ayatollah Khomeini came in, he crushed that and reversed that, that progress in women's rights. Talk a little bit about that and, and why this is so fundamental to the regime itself. So this is actually where you may even see some parallels with the rest of the Middle East. If you recall, I think uh, when General McMaster even, for instance, was National Security Advisor, there's a story where he allegedly showed President Trump an older photo of women in Afghanistan and drew a very sharp contrast in terms of images. Sometimes a picture really is a thousand words. Uh, you can do the same, for instance, with Egyptian cinema in the 50s and Egyptian cinema today. And Iran absolutely was not living in a vacuum at that time. Obviously, it was the, post, it was the Cold War era, qualitatively different kind of leadership in the Middle East, whether it was Soviet-aligned or Western bloc-aligned. And inside the, the late Shah's Iran, you had a significant amount of social freedoms, a significant amount of economic freedoms, and there were not commensurate political freedoms. And some could say that this really was the predicate to the China model, where there was rapid economic expansion, massive transfers of wealth, uh, but you did not have the commensurate political layering on. And given the, the you know, really, maybe you could say a half century at that time, 
history of movements for political emancipation, whether it was anti-imperial or anti-state inside the country, that model did not last. And there is a a really good uh, kind of summary general book I recommend, especially if uh, if the audience might be interested in this on the past you know century of you know street forces politics inside Iran. It's called Days of God. I think it's written by by a British gentleman James Buchan, and he has done I think one of the hardest things ever to do about the 1979 revolution, which is to show how it mattered so much in one sentence. And he says, I'm going to paraphrase it now because I can't remember it clearly, but what the Iranians most sought to preserve, they lost, and what the Iranians wished for, they never gained. So while they wanted to preserve that liberalism, that freedom, socially, economically, and layer on political emancipation, that totally was not at all the case. Not only did they not get commensurate political emancipation, but they lost some of those individual social liberties. And you see that now with the fight over the hijab, with the fight over dress, with the fight over people doing hand-holding, with the fight over not even having being able to have female musicians. You can cut this issue so many different ways, and it just shows you the ideas, the values that animated the regime's revolutionary elites and how they cloak themselves in this political language in the 70s when they were coming into power just so they could get in. And then ultimately from there, you saw over the past 43 years a narrowing of an already authoritarian system so that the men, quite literally, who are at the helm today are among the hardest of the hardest of the hardest uh, hardliners. So when you talk about the analogies with 1979, I think it's hugely important because, of course, that really is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about regime security, regime longevity. You mentioned strikes. There's a teacher strike that has been called, and I think an energy sector strike. So those of us who remember the revolution in 1979, remember, is the critical moment for the Shah was when he lost the support, first of the Bazaris, this middle class that had prospered under the Shah, and then the support of security forces. And that was the end. He was finished, he got on a plane, end of story. But that, to my mind, is not... (laughs) what Iran today looks like, even with these demonstrations, even with these strikes. What's the nail in the coffin for the regime? Uh, you know, Danny, you, again, um, I think condense this very well because there's an alliteration that I've been trying to sell about town, and it's SSSS. Okay. Streets, strikes, sanctions, security forces. And these are the four vectors to watch. Will the Iranian people remain on the streets? Will their activity on the streets be amplified by strikes, and will those strikes be sustained? Sanctions, will there be commensurate Western pressure at time one, two, three, so that when the Iranian people rise up from the bottom, there can be commensurate pressure from the top, like a pincer movement. And once that pincer happens, when there is diminishing revenues and a continuing conflict over, over diminishing resources, what will the security forces do at time one, time two, time three? Will they continue to shoot at their compatriots? Will they simply not show up? Will the regime have to deploy their Shiite foreign legion on Iranian soil like many dissidents and activists worry about constantly and may have even happened in past iterations of flood protesting in 2018, 2019? So these are the four things to watch. We haven't seen those massive cracks in the security apparatus yet, but just to remind the audience about the parallels between the 79 and the present, the day the Islamic Revolution declared victory, February 11, 1979, is 10 days after Khomeini arrived in Iran, which was February 1, 1979. The Shah left January 16, 1979. But on that same day, February 11, 1979, the thing that goaded the revolutionaries enough to declare victory, despite Khomeini only being there for 10 days, was the Artesh, the armed forces, declaring neutrality. So 
all eyes really should be on, especially as you know these strikes amplify what's going on on the street. What will the security forces do? And not just the Artesh, which is the conventional military, but the political, economic, security force conglomerate of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The fact that the Basij, which is an all-volunteer ideological paramilitary, which forms that check on Iranian society at all those institutions we talked about, is part of the ground forces of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And the fact that they have a very localized, regionalized, stratified command system that benefits from official vigilante militias like groups with names like Ansar Hezbollah, and that they, of course, also benefit from law enforcement forces and special units therein called the Yegana Vigier, or the literally the special units. So there is this cocktail that the regime has of security forces that in every different province they'll deploy a different iteration of these of these security forces. And that's why they're literally waging war in the southeast in Zahedan, where there's Iran's Baluch minority, and in the northwest in Iranian Kurdistan, where there's the Kurdish minority, literally waging war on those on those populations at the moment, and also engaging in the same kind of repression against the population writ large across the other side of the country, because they can afford to turn this like a Rubik's Cube, different forces to different provinces at different times with different levels of violence, and that's really the challenge. So for me, though, the $64,000 question. i got to stop using that expression. People are like, that's not much. That's not a lot of money. That's not much money. Uh, <laughs> Especially that doesn't seem very important. Today. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's actually uh, so it's, uh, the, significantly the, less than it was 12 months ago. The $6.4 trillion <laughs> question is, that's also true, wow. Um, and this is a fight I've had with some of your colleagues at FDD, uh, is, is, okay, you know, we talk about the regime as if it's one thing. As you very eloquently point out, there are lots and lots and lots of layers of security forces that are interlocking, but also in some ways independent. So the Artesh is, is the, uh, the regular military, but then you have these paramilitary forces and these elite military forces like the IRGC. If the regime falls, and when we say this, we the, the regime of the Islamic Republic, what Americans might say is the regime of the Ayatollahs, right? If that falls, isn't there every possibility that the IRGC takes over? And if you think that's a possibility, isn't that government arguably potentially even more dangerous than the one we have now? This is a, a real can of worms you open, and I can sincerely wonder who is that colleague? <laughs> Maybe it's our shared friend. Uh, it's Ruel, who always says, who, said, <laughs> who says, and our audience is like, who are you talking about? This is a good colleague and a dear friend of mine and, and everybody here who says, no, anything is better than the Ayatollahs. I don't know. So I, I do want the Ayatollahs to go, but I do want the Islamic Republic as a system to go. But I think you, you raise an important point. And one doesn't have to go as far back as 1979 or, or even compare this in Iranian historical terms, one should compare this across the board horizontally to other events in the Middle East, such as Egypt, for instance, where you had the, you know, the state security forces sacrifice the police, then you had the brotherhood problem, and then you had a coup to make the military look like the national savior, even though the military was the one propping up Mubarak from the get-go. So there is entirely the possibility here, remember, this is the Middle East, Middle East means that things can always get worse, not better, especially over time. We can take that with a grain of salt, but where we can have a little bit of optimism here is the will of the Iranian people to turn out at these time one, time two, time three, the continuity of the same message from these post-2017 protests, and of course, an inference made about the relationship between the Guard Corps and the clergy, that unlike a traditional hyper-secular military system, like we saw back in the 
Cold War era with South Korea, for instance, with the politicians and the military, or even Turkey at that time, or potentially even Pakistan, depending on how you look at the judiciary inside that country. The Guard Corps doesn't have the same meaning without the clergy, and the clergy doesn't have the same meaning without the Guard Corps. These are institutions that are, to borrow from the Robert Dalek book on Kissinger and Nixon, partners in power. And they've collaborated and they've competed and obviously, I think the Guard Corps has the upper hand now because the idea of the, an Islamic Republic is really a joke. And you had this former Ayatollah who was supposed to become the next uh, supreme leader of Iran, and he was ultimately cast aside in the 80s. There's a whole story. His name is Ayatollah Montazeri. But around the Green Movement time in 2009, he said this line, which I think is very apt and should open policymakers to the question that, that Danny raised, which is, you know, what kind of regime could come next? One hopes, obviously, that it would be a liberal democratic system. One hopes that it's a decapitation. One hopes that you can, you know, perhaps rehab some security forces. One hopes that you might be able to have a South Africa kind of style truth and reconciliation commission. These are the highest aspirations of the Iranian activist community of the, of the diaspora. But we also have to be quite frank and engage in these really hard-nosed conversations as to potential other models, given that there are lots of stakeholders interested in preserving what they've gained in the 43 years of an Islamic Republic that looks and acts this way. And to go back to that quote by Ayatollah Montazeri, an Islamic Republic, he said that at that point in time, the Islamic Republic was neither Islamic nor a republic. So we should be thinking creatively uh, about who are the other stakeholders, who stands behind the man with the turban, who empowers him, and thinking creatively about how to co-opt and neuter and deter and counter and devalue and offset the Guard Corps is what the best and the brightest, both inside the U.S. government and outside, should be doing. So my re frame of reference for all, I mean, obviously, that things don't translate from region to region of the world, but my frame of reference is always the revolutions of 89 in Eastern Europe. And what you're saying is, in a way, it, it could be Poland, but it could be Russia. <laughs> Right. You know, it could come out very well or it could come out as just another dictatorship in a new guise. But thinking back to that period when the Solidarity Movement rose up in Poland, President Reagan gave an address to the nation about the about the crackdown on the Solidarity Movement. He forces the federal government to provide assistance and underground covert assistance to the opposition. There was a strategy to help the opposition in Poland succeed and survive. And it took 10 years, but it didn't bring down the regime. What is the equivalent strategy for the United States? What should the United States be doing in Iran right now that has if, if different tactics, maybe different tools, but has the same objective, which is to help protesters topple the regime? I think this is... This and is, is that our goal right now? This is really a great question because we can say it's not our goal because it's not the goal of the Biden administration uh, throughout this uh, in, entire ordeal. But just to back away and to, to go to the lead of, of your uh, question there... I would be remiss to say that that was my thesis. Obviously, uh, Danny and I have another colleague that we've shared over the years, Ali Alfone, and this IRGC military coup business, that really is his thesis, and he's got books on it. Um, so I would be remiss to take credit uh, for something I did not sure. invent, obviously. But, it, but it's, a, it's, it's a theory that has been socialized, and it's something that actually many people are concerned about. By way of one small example for us to be concerned about, this is in the past 500 years in Iranian history, when there has been a collapse in central authority, there has been a rise in rural or peripheral authority. And you actually see this in relation to other security events, such as the tail end of Gulf War I, first Persian Gulf War, over the liberation of Kuwait. There are allegations that Khomeini's son, Ahmad Khomeini, tried to take a missile battery and fire it at the international coalition operating on the other side of the Persian Gulf. And allegedly, it was the IRGC that stopped him. This is, this is you know, more apocryphal kind of literature, but he died shortly thereafter. 
and also the heir of Khomeini was never treated anywhere like Khomeini himself, who was the founding father of the Islamic Revolution, was treated. So there's all these exogenous shocks that could come in personalities, families, dynasties, people, players. So it's, again, it's like a Rubik's Cube. It gets more and more complex. And, um, and of course, Ayatollah Khamenei is also, the current supreme leader, has also been reportedly very sick. He went off the scene right in the early days of the demonstrations, right? He just disappeared for days, and people actually speculated he might be dead. And there was already very unseemly jockeying inside the leadership for succession So that we saw. So that could be another exogenous shock that we really just, gosh... It's hard to know where to go. It's it's really hard to know where to go, and I, I promise, Mark, I do want to address your question. But you know, that would be good. The, the we time get is an answer to that. The, the, the time is ripe for for again the best and the brightest in D.C. to do. I think what a former State Department uh, representative in Iran did right at the beginning of the 1978-79 revolution, which is to write down something called thinking the unthinkable. Uh, you know, it's high time for us to think through these very tough scenarios. What about securing fissile material? What about securing individual liberty? You know, at what level is a guard corps or our Tesh commander good enough to save? Who will handle these truth and reconciliation commissions? These are lots and lots and lots of complex questions for policymakers, we activists. We couldn't even get debathification right exactly. in, uh, in, in Iraq. So we could have figured that out Where we were the occupying force, we should have. Parallels to avoid and parallels to you know, be cognizant of. So pivoting from those parallels to yeah. policy. It is clear that it is not the policy of the Biden administration to change the regime in Iran. Uh, I am a little bit more of a pessimist, and I think the selective changes, which are good in the in the discourse of the Biden administration on the Iran protests, and in particular President Biden standing with protesters during his UNGA speech, uh, that was you know uh, both morally, strategically, and I think politically the right thing for the leader of the United States of America to do. But my fear is that this stuff, to borrow from Tom Schelling. Uh, is more ornamental than instrumental. That if the Ayatollah, if Ayatollah Khamenei uh, gets on the phone and actually does dial in that nuclear deal that allegedly was right around the corner in August and allegedly has been right around the corner so many times throughout 2022 and we've lost weekends covering and tracking, uh, that the administration may cave. And worse than that, that the Europeans who you now see a stiffening of their spine on the counterterrorism front, on the and the human rights front, that they too may cave. Because the West's Iran policy for a very long time, really for the past two decades, has been defined by trying to prevent a nuke and sacrificing everything on that altar. And obviously things would be much harder if this regime with this kind of behavior and this kind of deplorable foreign and security policy and treatment of its own citizens had a nuke. Obviously that would be harder. But the pulled punches in the quest to try to get a deal that would only delay actually hurts us. So step number one on the protest file is take the Hippocratic Oath approach. Step number one. Do no harm. Close the door. Nail the coffin on a deal predicated on the JCPOA that would underwrite the guard court, that would underwrite the Ayatollahs, that would expedite the regime's foreign and security policy, which is now proliferating drones and ballistic missiles to Russia to use against Ukraine. So there's a widening threat radius of this problem. And, of course, acts this way at home. You do not want to be enriching these people who look at foreign nationals and dual nationals as pawns to play in their game of strategic competition against the West, who are moving closer and closer in an overt way towards the likes of Russia and China because they want to be used in this larger game of death by a thousand cuts against this Western-led world order. So step number one, close the door on the thing that will facilitate that. Shut the lid on the JCPOA. And that can happen, in my view, very clearly in two ways. One, if some of the hyper pro-JCPOA voices that are charged with resurrecting that accord in the administration are no longer in the administration. So if the administration makes a firing choice... Are you saying get choice, rid of Rob Malley? <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it, but I, I would say that the loss of that North Star, 
And he is. For the deal uh, would, would be a real sign to the protesters that the U.S. is not in the JCPOA business anymore. That would be one. The other would be triggering this mechanism built into the deal called snapback, which actually expires in 2025, but through the U.N. process allows you to shut the door on the deal. And it's something that actually was thought of quite cleverly by former uh, Iran deal negotiators prior to 2015 and put into that deal. It basically reverse engineers the veto mechanism of the U.N. Security Council, so only one actor is needed to close the door on the deal. And, but that will, that will lapse in 2025. So step number one, do that. Step number two is to vigorously enforce the penalties that the Biden administration inherited, particularly on oil and petrochemical, so that if you do have this strike business be really spread throughout the energy sector, you could have the regime also facing tightening revenues over time because they continue to illicitly sell oil to China. And on the petrochemical front, there's more in it for them because they're not selling something priced at the price of a barrel of crude oil. They're selling a derivative of it. So it's worth the risk to ship it, to insure it, to transfer it. So, and this is really one way the regime has gotten around energy sanctions in the past. These differences between crude oil and petrochemical and U.S. law, the hesitancy to cr- crack down on this, the fact that some of this stuff is not dollar-denominated. You want to basically come down on this regime like a ton of bricks as to any foreign source of funding. And inheriting the penalties that the administration was remiss to even stand by for the past year and a half is step number two. Step number three is, you know, what me and a, and a colleague actually called for in, in this bipartisan protest policy playbook. Keep the protests in the limelight. Talk about them. Mention the killed Iranians. Mention the songs. Mention the ideas. Mention the fact that the diaspora is protesting in over 150 cities around the world. Keep this in the headlines. The Iranian people know, need to know that the West stands with them in their plight. We don't always have the luxury in places like the Middle East where our head and our heart can be on the same place. Oftentimes we've had a competition between our strategy and our values, what's good for us and what's right by us. Uh, standing with the Iranian people is both good for us and it's right by us. What about proactive things we could do? So, you know, again, during the Cold War, there was an information blockade against the Polish people, which was a lot easier to do in the era before the internet, but the regime has been cracking down on internet access. So there have been talk about, you know, getting Starling terminals into, in, into Iran. Should we be providing for covert operations to fund the opposition? I mean, what are the proactive things besides returning to the Trump policy, which that's a baseline is the baseline and speaking out more forcefully in favor of democracy, which wasn't necessarily for the Trump policy? What is the Reagan policy? (laughs) Well, here's that's that's the baseline that it's good to draw that parallel. But the the next steps really do mean. And I don't mean arms for hostages. <laughs> yeah, if you, Thanks, it, Mark. It, Thanks it, for that clarification. It, it may look quite good in the Eastern Europe context, but not, not, in, not in the Middle East context. Yeah, There's sure. Iran-Contra and all sure, this business. Sure, yes. but step one really has to be creating some kind of a strike fund. And here is where there is actually a mirror imaging or precedent that both Trump and Biden have. Because both Trump and Biden have selectively enforced oil sanctions to the degree that they use DOJ, Department of Justice, asset forfeiture uh, rules to actually take Iranian oil off of these tankers when they're violating U.S. sanctions and sell them. And now you actually do have a lot of different victims of, of families of terrorism trying to tie that as an asset and, and trying to challenge that and use that as a government-owned asset in the courts to try to pay victims of families of terrorism. The U.S. should step this up and step this up and use that some of that money to develop what you mentioned was the corollary in Poland, which is some kind of a strike fund that could actually covertly fund through some kind of, obviously with the parallel of the 80s legal mechanism consistent within the full scope of U.S. law 
to actually give money to Iranian trade unions, to actually give money to families that have lost breadwinners, not just in this protest, but in those different iterations of anti-regime protests we've seen since 2017. And most importantly, if union folks and energy sector folks do go on strike in a sustained way inside Iran, how to actually have them keep accessing their wages while crippling the regime's wages. Because this is really going to be key if we're going to put time back on the side of the Iranian protesters. So a national strike fund is key. There are ways you can get this money. And the other parallel which you raised, which uh, me and a colleague, Saeed, who uh, is an economist, he lives in New York. I'm, I'm lucky to have him as a colleague. But he's lived this in a way that I haven't, in the sense that he was in Avin prison, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 2000s before he obviously left Iran. So coming together, activists and analysts, analysts and activists, depending on who you look at what, when, I, I think is key. And, and someone like Said has been able to point to a parallel. And him and I got to point to this parallel about satellites in Iran for satellite television rather than for satellite internet. The regime stopped for many, many years. Uh, and again, he lived it. The illicit import of hardware for satellite dishes so that people could watch satellite TV. But there was such a reliable and steady and cheap stream of this hardware, meaning satellite dishes, that even the Guard Corps engaged in the sellback of some of these satellites to the Iranian people, or even the law enforcement forces engaged in the sellback. So if this startling thing is meant to be operational, and it seems like the hardware issue is the last holdup, we need to have Elon Musk and you know the private sector and the tech sector, and in fact the, the U.S. intelligence community, on the same basis, what is their threshold for risk? What can they do? What can they provide? What can some of the countries literally on the periphery of the Iranian state do uh, to amplify some of that and potentially even to consider smuggling? And to use the metaphor of the satellite dish smuggling over time, to not be deterred if the regime finds one one basket of satellites or finds one hardware kit uh, for Starlink over time. Because what, what position we're in right now is actually the most dangerous, where we say we're going to do something and there may not be commensurate activity behind it. Because already the Starlink website is down in Iran, and already there are all these hacker and ransomware groups trying to take advantage of the fact that there are Iranians looking for Starlink online and actually using this to reportedly uh, you know, put malware on the, com the computers and, and mobile devices of potential activists or potential protesters or potential strikers. So we're, we're in this position where we're potentially talking about the provision of this service without providing it. And I think that's really one of the more dangerous positions, uh, both for the private sector who may want to help, as well as for the U.S. government to be in. Interesting. All right. We have run out of time by more than 50% here, but I want to ask you an exit question. How at risk do you think the regime is? I can't put it at a percent, but in all those different iterations of 2017 to present anti-regime protests, when Western analysts would look at it and Western journalists would look at it as a water or environmental or economic protest, the level of violence the regime showed uh, against uh, the Iranian people tells you that they believe they were at risk. They never had any analysis paralysis. They never had any uh, dreams or objections as to what these were. They knew when people said death to Khamenei on the streets, what that meant. They knew when they burned an effigy of the former uh, Quds Force commander, which was Iran's chief terrorist and military strategist, Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a U.S. drone strike in 2020. They knew that when Iranians were burning effigies of him or burning a, uh, a statue of his ring or pulling down his statues, what this meant. They knew how widespread this feeling was. So I can't put a number on it. But on balance, the good guys are winning. But how do we put time on their side is a bigger question. Fantastic. This was so great. Thank you so much. So really fascinating. And, you know, one of those things where 
I think we could be doing so much more to help them. And as you say, the rhetoric doesn't match the action, but a great conversation. Thank you, Bernard. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. A real pleasure. Thank you. I, mean, I don't think there's much left to say, Danny. I mean, we need a strategy to help the Iranians succeed and not let the Iranian regime crush this protest. I agree wholeheartedly. I We didn't talk a lot about the Iranian supply of drones to Ukraine, but I recommend to everybody that you go back and listen to our conversation with Fred Kagan about this, because first of all, it was laugh out loud funny when I asked about Iran helping Russia. And, uh, and he said, well, Danny, you know, they don't call it an axis of virtue. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's exactly right. But what is really, I think, striking is that what Iran is providing to Russia is garbage. They're much vaunted drones that are being shot down at a rate of, you know, one or two out of four. They're neither good equipment nor are they reliable equipment. And yet the Iranians are brazenly out there helping Putin, which should tell the Biden administration everything it needs to know about this regime. You're completely right. They need to wake up and have a proactive strategy to help people help themselves. Or Biden needs to wake up, period. Well, that's true, too. In any case, <laughs> anyway, we digress. <laughs> we digress. Look, the theme of our podcast is Stand with Freedom. And here's another case where we should be doing more. In Ukraine, at least, we're doing something, though. As Danny, very articulately, and we'll link to it in the show notes, uh, has a great piece demonstrating how the Biden administration has dragged its feet in Ukraine. Uh, but we're not even at the foot-dragging stage in Iran. <laughs> That's, that's absolutely true. And hey, folks, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, subscribe, share, go and if, on. And if you've gotten this far in the podcast, I'm <laughs> sure. starting I'm going to say this every episode. If you're still with us here, that means you like our podcast, you're a listener, hit the subscribe button, tell your friends, share it today so we can get the word out to more people. Thanks a ton. Take care. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.